When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to be here with us in this place this morning, and we trust that you are here with us. May my words be your words. And all of our thoughts, your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. A number of years ago, I worked as a sermon researcher, a sermon research assistant for a moderately well-known preacher. And during that time, We planned and he preached a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Now, this preacher traveled and spoke at conferences a lot. And my job was to prepare background research for him to come home to, to get him started preparing his sermon, which he would usually spend pretty much all of Saturday writing. Now, since sermon plagiarism has been in the news a little bit these last few months, let me make a quick aside and clarify that he only ever used my work as background And always wrote his own sermon. But I remember the sinking feeling I got one Saturday afternoon. I was literally sitting by the pool. I got a phone call and it was my preacher boss telling me that I'd sent him research on the wrong commandment. That I'd done them out of order. And after some discussion and some googling, we realized that different church traditions divide up the Ten Commandments in different ways. And we were working from two different lists. Who knew, right? I looked at Wikipedia this week just to remind myself, and they have a chart of eight different ways that the Ten Commandments can be broken up and numbered. Now, these days, of course, I'm doing my own sermon research. But guess what? I still make mistakes. And I had a version of my Ten Commandments fiasco just this week. See, I knew from reading our assigned scriptures on Monday that we were reading the story of the feeding of the 5,000 followed by Jesus walking on the water. But then when I looked back at the readings the next time, when I really started thinking and praying about what the Lord might have me share with you this morning, I accidentally went back and read them from Mark chapter 6 instead of John chapter 6. Like that time with the Ten Commandments is not totally my fault. It's the same chapter number after all. And if you've been following along with us these last several weeks, we've been reading from Mark for more than a month. It seems only natural that we continue and read these stories in Mark, but no, it's John. But I believe that the Holy Spirit was at work even in this because I actually came across something interesting in Mark that I want to share with you this morning just an odd little phrase that I think will help us interpret this story of Jesus walking on the Sea of Tiberias to his terrified disciples, no matter which biblical writer's account we read. Matthew, Mark, and John all tell this story, but only Mark includes this one little bit, this bit that caught my ear in a special way this week. Immediately, Mark writes... That is, immediately after feeding 5,000 people miraculously, which 
fear not, we will get to in just a moment. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he, Jesus, was alone on the land. And he saw that they, the disciples, were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Now, I suspect I've wondered about this before, but this week I did a double take, a real huh? When Mark says that Jesus, walking on the sea, meant to pass by his disciples. Really? What is going on there? Jesus is just out for a stroll and was hoping they wouldn't see him. Like when you're in the grocery store and you see someone you know and decide to turn your cart down the pet food aisle until they're gone. You know, you like the person fine. You just don't feel up to talking to them right now. Is that what's going on with Jesus here? Just needs a little break from his disciples and decides to take a little constitutional on the surface of the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus does get caught. The disciples see him, think he's a ghost and cry out. And he comes and comforts them. And the oddness of this little note that Jesus meant to pass them by, which doesn't appear in John, sent me on a little hunt this week to figure out what's going on. What is Mark trying to say? And as it turns out, when Mark says that Jesus meant to pass them by, he's not saying that Jesus is trying or hoping to escape their notice. Mark is actually drawing the reader's attention to something quite profound. Even though three gospel writers tell us this story, Mark places this special little pin in it. And he's showing us that Jesus, in this act of walking on the surface of the sea, is making a claim on divinity. He's showing the disciples that he is God. To understand this, we have to go back to the Old Testament, to two different places to which Mark is connecting this story. First, to the book of Exodus, and then to the prophet Isaiah. Let's look at Exodus first. By chapter 33 of the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel has come out of Egypt. They have miraculously crossed the Red Sea, and this crossing and the Passover just before it will become the defining event in their nation's history. The people have wandered through the desert. They've received the law at Mount Sinai. They've just been caught worshiping the golden calf. And Moses has had to intercede for them. And now, after God assures Moses that he, Moses, has found favor in God's sight, Moses asks for a kind of guarantee. And he requests that he be allowed to see God's glory. 
You guys are probably familiar with this story. This is Exodus 33. I'm going to start reading for you in verse 19. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. God in this passage continually refers to himself as passing by Moses. This is how the holiness of Almighty God must interact with mere mortal and sinful man. We cannot simply stand in the presence of God. God, for us to survive, must pass by. This is one of the connections to which Mark is pointing. He's suggesting that Jesus, in walking on the sea, is pointing to something very deep going on. Something going back to the most profound time in Israel's history. When they dealt with God almost face to face. Indeed, when Mark says that Jesus meant to pass the disciples by. Out there on the sea, he's saying that Jesus meant to act like almighty God. Jesus in Mark 6 is acting exactly like God the Father in Exodus 33. God passed by Moses and Jesus is said to be intending to pass by his disciples. This is Jesus staking a claim. This is Jesus saying he is God. And he's not done yet. In Isaiah chapter 51, the prophet is in the middle of a poem about God's power and strength. And Isaiah calls back, just as you might expect him to, to that greatest of historical moments. The crossing of the Red Sea and Israel's liberation from Egypt. Awake, awake, put on strength, Isaiah writes. O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The story of Jesus walking on water would have immediately and necessarily reminded Mark's readers of their exodus and their miraculous sea crossing. God, says Isaiah, is the one who splits the sea. The one who controls it, who pierces it, the one who makes the waters, which, by the way, are what the ancients thought of as 
uh, symbolic for chaos and evil. God is the one who makes these waters, makes the chaos passive and calm, safe to pass through. God is the one who might even walk on the surface of the deep. So combine these two ideas. Jesus passing by the disciples, like God passing by Moses, and Jesus controlling the deeps of the Sea of Galilee, like God controlled the Red Sea at the Exodus. Combine these two ideas, and you have Jesus making a distinct claim for divinity. The one you've been reading about for all these generations, he might be saying, the main character in every story, you know, it's me. I am him. And in fact, to bring it all home, Jesus says exactly that. It is I. Do not be afraid. That's what Jesus says when he arrives at the boat in Mark chapter 6, verse 50. And it's exactly what Almighty God says to comfort his people in Isaiah 51, right after staking his claim as Lord of the deep. I, God says, I am he who comforts you. That's Isaiah 51, verse 12. Take heart, it is I. Jesus tells the disciples, do not be afraid. It is I, Jesus says. It is I that Isaiah foretold. It is I who passed by Moses as he hid in the cleft of the rock. It is I. I am God made manifest. But of course, Jesus is not simply some God all-powerful ruler of the wind and waves. He is that kind of God, but he is also God, the Son. He is the Redeemer of the world. Jesus has an announcement for those wind-torn and weary disciples. Do not be afraid, I am a rescuer. Thirteen centuries ago, I rescued my people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. This very afternoon... In that crowd of 5,000 people, I rescued my people from their hunger, from their lack of food. And of course, in just a short time, he will act mightily on the cross and in the tomb to rescue sinners into eternal life. Mark records that Jesus got into the boat with them and the wind, the wind that they had been brutally striving against for hours, Jesus got into the boat and the wind ceased. And then John writes that immediately they reached the shore toward which they were heading. Their work was over. It was finished. Now we see in these two stories back to back, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the sea. We see the two announcements That God in Christ makes to the world. As he strides across the waves, his actions proclaim, I am the Lord your God, creator of the heavens and the earth, even the wind and the waves obey me. Before this announcement, we rightly sit back in awe. 
The proper response is to submit ourselves, to confess our sins, and call out for mercy. And then in the second commandment, that mercy is given, promised. As Jesus takes five loaves and two fish, he provides for the needy. His offer here is, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, you hungry and thirsty, I will give you food and drink. Come, you sinner, and I will save. The proper response to this is joyful celebration. These are God's two words to you, an announcement of power that brings about wonder and repentance and an announcement of grace that brings about celebration and salvation. So listen now to Jesus's announcement and promise to you. He is God made man, Yahweh in the flesh, and he has come to save. He was there at the creation And he will preside over the redemption. He is worthy of worship, adoration, and obedience. And he freely gives his obedience to the unworthy. He will be your advocate before the Father at the end of time. He is the one who saves. He has always been the one who saves. Since Genesis 3, when God promised that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent Jesus saves. In this world, Jesus preached in John 16, you will have struggles. You will fight against your oars and the wind will seem like it's never going to let up. But Jesus is God. God made manifest. He came to feed the hungry to give drink to the thirsty, to free the captives, to calm the waves, and to save sinners, to save you. In this world, you will have struggles, Jesus says to you. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so he has. Thanks be to God. Amen.